Welcome back to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very pleased to be joined by Andrea Samadhi, who is the founder, author, and creator of Achieve It 360, an educational consulting firm she founded in 2012. She's also the host of Neuroscience Meets Social Emotional Learning podcast, and we're very happy to have her on as a guest today. Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Mike, for having me today. Regular listeners to the show know that we frequently talk about neuroscience and we love to talk about brains and we also love to talk about social and emotional learning. In fact, I'd like to say I get socio-emotional baby regularly on the show because I like to break into song whenever possible. So the fact that you were able to hit two of our zeitgeisty words in uh, trending in education, one being neuroscience and the other being social-emotional learning, that's super relevant and it sets a nice uh, foundation for us to go a little deeper on some of this stuff. Uh, can you talk a little bit about how the Neuroscience Meets Social Emotional Learning podcast came into being? Definitely, definitely. Well, before it was a podcast, I actually connected the two ideas, neuroscience and social emotional learning together because I was urged to go that route from an educator that was working with my programs and he said, you know, I really see that you need to make your programs brain-based. And this was back in 2014. I was given grant money to work with schools in Arizona. And uh, that's really where it started. He said, you don't have to do this, but I'd really like to see you write another book. Mm -hmm. And I thought, oh no, do I give him his money back? Or do I do what he's saying? And you know, when you, when you receive criticism, he did it in such a way because he was an experienced educator, former superintendent, that I really wanted to do what he was suggesting. And yep. He was in his office and he takes all these books off his bookshelf, you know, D'Souza's How the Brain Learns. And, and he was giving me all his most valuable resources. Yeah. And I thought, if I don't do this, you know, this is going to be really bad. So mm -hmm. I thought I, I better figure this out. And so that's really where it started. I was lucky at the time that I was mentoring with John Asraf, who's had a neuroscience researcher. I was able to call up and say, hey, can you help me make this connection? And when I was given Mark Waldman's research, he actually gave me everything he was working on, a book he hadn't even published yet. And I completely saw how the, the five competencies of social emotional learning, and I added the growth mindset in there for the six, yeah. But I saw how they really connected to the brain and neuroscience. And so that's where the, the title came from. And I actually had social emotional learning meets neuroscience first. And I threw that past a bunch of educators that I work with at the Department of Ed. And, and they said, you know, let's put neuroscience first because mm -hmm. everyone's tired of hearing about social emotional learning. Yeah. You know, it's been thrown around out there. Let's put the focus on neuroscience. So. Mm -hmm. Before this was even a podcast, that's where that came from. Yeah. I wrote the, the curriculum based on the Level Up book. The program came out. And then I presented it in Toronto to uh, York Region schools at a conference. And I was told my session was the first to sell out before the event even began. Nice. And I hadn't even presented this yet. This was just ideas that I saw through this research. And yeah. It was all very new to me, and I remember, you know, I had to practice so hard to get those three parts of the brain down. Um, 
And then, you know, then it was taken really well. We had over 300 people come to each of the sessions. People yeah. were lined up against the walls. And mm -hmm. so, you know, that's, that's where I knew I had something. Yeah. So when I was actually looking to redo my website last January, I bought a template that had a podcast theme and I'd always been interviewing people. I have an online membership area where all my programs are for the students and teachers. So interviewing people wasn't new, but the podcast was, you know, I looked it up, the, the developer said, you know, you can delete that section if you don't want it on your website. And I thought, well, let's just see what's involved. And I Googled, how do you start a podcast? And there was all this stuff about syndicated. Yeah. I didn't even know what it was, how to yeah. get started, but you can easily figure out anything. And that's really where the podcast started. Yeah. You know, just in June, I thought, let's just do this. And, and I, I was shocked at how it took off. It started yeah. very slowly and you know, it's, you, you start getting listeners, you got to put content out, but then yeah. it builds and the momentum builds on its own. So next thing you know, you're appearing on trending in education. Like it's, it's a real uh, Cinderella story, you know? It's crazy the amount of people that contact me for their shows yeah. or conferences now. I'm always yeah. getting messages on Twitter. Well, you know, when you were talking, it sounds like the peanut butter and chocolate uh, eureka moment happened. And frequently that, that is the case nowadays too, where like, you know, folks tend to get expertise in one sort of narrow thing and they don't necessarily make the lateral connection. And then I think if you can find interesting pairings to make those types of connections, and neuroscience and social emotional learning makes perfect sense. You know, it's, it's almost like the way we have this arbitrary distinction between the arts and sciences. Mm -hmm. You know, we almost think if something's emotional in nature, that there isn't some sort of neurochemical foundation, neurological brain functioning aspects to the concept. And that's, that's actually incorrect. You know, like how we feel physically and how our neurons are firing and how our you know neural activity through the through the hormones in our brains those are physical measurable things that we feel quote in my scare quotes for our listeners are are only in my in my visual uh, space right now but we we feel things that can be measured as hard science. So can you talk a little bit about how the, how the interplay between social emotional learning and neuroscience has, has brought some interesting revelations or insights to you? Definitely. So we, we've got the social part of social and emotional. So just think about that, the social brain, mm -hmm. you know, we, we've got how to navigate social situations, resolving conflict, showing respect towards others. So those are all the social skills that we have. And then there's a lot of research out there about the social brain. You just Google social brain. There's, there's a lot out there. When we feel threatened or rejected in a group, we turn to the fight or flight with our brain. So, you know, there's that whole aspect growing up, you know, what it felt like when you're in middle school and high school, if you didn't belong, just now we can understand that with our own kids or with our students that, you know, the way that we feel about world strategies is how our young students are feeling about inclusion. Mm -hmm and thinking about how their brains are shutting down. So just understanding that part with the social, these are all skills that we now know we need to teach mm -hmm. uh, in the schools and, yeah. and the curriculum is coming in with that. Yeah. 
And then we've got the whole emotional side. So emotions come into the brain with a stimulus that triggers the body for a certain response. And then it hits our limbic system, sends messages to our amygdala, and then our hippocampus with our memory. It's all connected. So we've now got to understand our own emotions and the emotions of others. Mm -hmm. So there's the social side, there's the emotional side, um, recognizing and managing our emotions, others, and the ability to cope with frustration, disappointments, and stress. And I actually interviewed Mark Brackett. He was uh, the founder of the Yale Center of Emotional Intelligence and he, his new and most recent book, Permission to Feel. It's so interesting because he talks about how, you know, we're not taught to talk about our feelings at all. And he did this activity. He said, show me on your face what anger looks like. And anyone can show anger, but show me on your face what love looks like and the whole room nobody could do it and i was thinking myself i'm like i know what love feels like it's you know unmistakable when you feel yeah. love you know right but what does that look like i have no idea yeah so when you were talking before about what areas do you think we still need to dive deep into well i think we understand the social side but the emotional side we're still yeah. it's not you know, been the norm to talk about our feelings out loud yeah. and yeah. say how we're feeling. And then the third part brings in those academic and cognitive skills, the skills our brain needs to think, reason, remember. And we all know what those executive functions are. They're, they're the prefrontal cortex, like focusing and setting goals. And there's a lot of research about ways to improve the executive function. But putting all these three things together, the social, emotional, and cognitive, in your opinion, what do you think we need to pay attention to? Um, I, I think the connections among the three is is where I really feel sometimes we we almost miss the through line, you know. So that's why, like the 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 fact that you know you talk about the the feeling of love, you know, or there was a I shared that a Harvard Business Review art, article where they were measuring levels of oxytocin in uh, in their subjects' blood. Like I was like they were actually testing oxytocin levels by by drawing blood before and after an intervention which the fact that they got that through a human subjects board i think was, was was pretty impressive to begin with but the idea that there are measurable ways to get feedback on social and emotional cognitive states i think we're just at the the early stages of making that feedback you know a less invasive so like you know less drawing of 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 blood you know, less putting on the, the, the tinfoil cap and more like through some sort of passive monitoring, getting a read on the, the level of trust and psychological safety you have within your classroom, you know, like starting to make that more transparent or if you're teaching online, you know, how do you, how do you capture nonverbals so that you can sync up with the emotional state of the people you're trying to communicate with. I think a lot of that will remain sort of ineffable, intangible, unmeasurable. But I think increasingly the science is showing us that some of these things can actually be measured. And that's where I think the real breakthroughs will happen in the future is like making transparent to a teacher through use of technology, feedback, monitoring, new levels of insight into understanding and comprehension from, from their classroom. 
and then I think that also happens in the other direction for the learner themselves. Like, you know, I use, uh, use Strava, I've used, you know, Duolingo, I play a lot of fantasy sports and all those things provide really rich data sets. You know, the whole quantified self movement. I think the quantified self as it relates to the learner, we're still in a very early stage. So like if I could get some biofeedback, you know, after I'm taking a high stakes test or after I'm doing a public speaking engagement to see, you know, how agitated was I and were there points where I was too hype and I needed to calm down? Were there points where I was too calm and I needed to amp up? I think those types of problems are going to potentially begin to be solved in the next, say, five to 10 years where simple feedback mechanisms will give teachers and learners access to new ways to kind of change behavior, break patterns. And I know I did want to make sure we talked about some of your thinking about how to break patterns because I thought that was really interesting. And then the other thing maybe we could start with is the three modes of brain functioning, which I saw you uh, did, a, did a post about, you know, the, it's the salient executive and default modes. And I saw a really good Vox explainer about this, but I, I think you went into further depth than I saw there. And I think all that then feeds back to what I was saying, like, that's where, you know, metacognition and awareness of the mode that I'm in and then some intentionality so that, okay, now I want to affect change. I want to shift how I'm thinking, how I'm operating. I, that stuff's really, really interesting because I think that'll unlock new opportunities to change behavior. So can you talk a little bit about both those things, like those modes and then how to affect behavioral change? Yeah, definitely. So, so if you were to ask me what, what my favorite part of the brain was, you know, back in 2014, I only know... I only knew the three parts of the brain that Mark Waldman taught me. Then when I interviewed him in December, he said, let's scrap all that. I want to talk to you about the salient network, the central executive network, and the last one is the default mode network. And that's what he's focused on now. And, and it's pretty powerful because um, few people have learned how to intuitively self-reflect on the deeper issues and struggles that we have. So when we're able to have relaxed, intuitive inquiry in our, in, in our brain, that's the salient network. And when we can think about our problems, that's using the prefrontal cortex, the central executive network. And then, but most of us are stuck in the default mode network, our worries and our fears. So there's an amazing uh, strategy or step process that Waldman taught me on, on the interview that I did with him. And a lot of the athletes are doing it. You know, you've got a problem or you're, or you're going in for a test or you've got something important at work. You've got to, first of all, relax, visualize. You see the athletes doing it before a game. I was blown away when I saw a baseball player sitting on the field. Instead of practicing, he was meditating. Mm -hmm. So you've got to relax your, your body. That's when the creative insights flow into your brain. And Dr. Srini Pillay wrote a whole book on this, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. Mm. He's a Harvard um, professor, and he talks about the fact that, you know, Einstein created his theory of relativity in a dream. Mm -hmm. We've got to have those breaks where we stop thinking, and we're so busy these days. We're go, go, go. You know, I have to wake up early to practice this because otherwise it will never get 
done. And the fact that I'm researching all these people and I have all these tools, I think, you know, where am I going to put this? Well, I've got to wake up a bit before everybody else does so that right, I can right. practice this. But There's a trade-off there because you need to get your sleep too, you know? So like, exactly. what do you do? Go to bed early. <laughs> and and then it's all, sleep is always on my list. I could do with probably another half hour. Yeah. But, you know, right now it's so important to me that I'm learning this stuff. So I yeah. wake up and I'm ready to go. So I, I have a I have a one year old at home, so uh, so I, I'm sort of I'm punting on sleep for a little while. But uh, right. I'm a big believer in its power. Right. I couldn't have done this with a one year old. So, but uh, but it's it's getting to those places where we can relax. It doesn't have to be an hour in the middle of the day. If you could go for a walk, take a break from what you're doing, a brain break. We're we're trying to get there in the classroom. I have superintendents that listen to the podcast with these ideas, and they say, okay, how could we put this in the classroom when it's so high stress? Bam, bam, bam. You've got to get through the curriculum. Right. And it's gonna take time to get there, but it has to be the way it goes because the brain needs a break, and right. that's just the way that it's it's going to learn. Uh, learning consolidation takes place those aha moments, you're not going to get there by staring at that math problem and trying to jam into it. You're going to get there by walking away, by brainstorming with someone else. So right. those aha moments are the only way by, by giving the brain a break. So, yeah. and, and we were talking about, about this heading in too, is like when you think about the way the workplace is changing, you know, like increasingly it's going to be the job of humans to have more aha moments because the more, you know, rote things that could be done uh, by a human are going to be done, are they going to be automated? So it's, it's becoming increasingly important to have the social emotional skills, which I've, I've heard creativity thrown into the mix in terms of social and emotional uh, learning. And I certainly think of it that way, where like, in order to break out of sort of the rut of routinized thinking and, you know, you know, Daniel Kahneman talks about, you know, fast and slow thinking. So like to actually break out of some of those ruts of the default mode network, you know, we need to learn how to both notice when we're in that rut and then adopt practices for ourselves that break the negative aspects of that sort of feedback loop. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how to, how to be, A, become aware, you know, so metacognition is something I've seen you write about. I know it's a big deal in terms of all of this. And then B, having the, the ability to break off of the old routines and adopt new ones. Because uh, it seems like you need all of those things to really, you know, become, become a fuller version of who you are. So I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure, definitely. And, and it's, kind of funny because I'm right in the middle of a 90-day breaking a habit system here. So in order to explain something, if I'm living it, then it comes through far more authentically. But so as far as the metacognition or the thinking about our thinking, that was actually, I I created a graphic with Mark Waldman. He had something in there with regards to his work. And I could actually see as we went through the steps let's just say you're a student in the classroom and you're learning something. You go through the steps of learning and you get to a place where you've got to start thinking about the strategies you're using. Maybe the radio playing or the TV playing is not working. So you've got to think about your thinking. Is this strategy working? Am I getting the results? And that takes effort. 
to first of all think, is this working? And second, to make a change and say, okay, I've got to shut off my phone. It's distracting me. I've got to do things differently. So uh, as, as we're training ourselves and training our students, we've got to start thinking of ways that we're building them to make these self-correction strategies with mm -hmm. their learning. Mm -hmm. And we can learn anything when we have the right learning strategies in place. Right. Um, anything is possible. But so there's that whole side of it. And then with regards to breaking a habit, well, anything is possible if we can replace the bad habit with a good habit. So, you know, it, it's hard for to think about with, with regards to working. I can only think about it when I'm writing it and relate it to studying. So if you've got a habit of doing things a certain way and you're not getting the results, you've got to go back and change things. And it's uncomfortable. It's not as pleasurable. It's harder work. But those are the things that we have to do to self-correct. Anytime we're breaking a habit, it's probably something we like doing. Like, you know, you don't want to drink coffee every day anymore. You replace it with water, hot water with lemon. And, you know, that sounds just so exciting, but it feels great. You, you might notice you have more energy, you're more focused, you're more clear. And as you get the benefits of whatever habit you're changing, that's how you keep going with the habit right. maybe you say okay i'm done with the hot lemon i'm going to go back to my coffee and you notice wow i'm not as focused so it, it will give you the motivation but you've got to have that motivation and know why right. you're changing and that's the whole thing behind why we're studying why are we actually sitting here doing all these changing all these learning strategies there's got to be the end result or the bigger purpose of what we're going for right um, and most people don't know what our why is and that's why we need to take the time to focus and know why are we doing this mm -hmm. and that's how we can get those long-term habits to change from things that aren't working to things that that are when we see the traction then it's more desirable to have that hot lemon water instead right. of the coffee or do half decaf. Right. Well, and the related thing that you mentioned, I think in the same article is uh, the importance of having an accountability buddy as well, which I think also puts, puts us back into a social context as well, where like, you know, if we think improving ourselves, affecting behavioral change, in some ways, I think it's why people talk about, talk publicly about their new year's resolutions is like, you want to be, you want to be out there if you don't say you're going to change if you don't tell people i want to be held accountable it's easy to let yourself slip back into old behaviors but if you're very overt and intentional about the behavioral change you're trying to affect and then you enlist folks who are trying to do the same thing i thought that was also uh you know a, a good a good insight and to me it, it was another example of how these things do sort of tie together in that it's always a social you know, I think we underestimate how social and emotional everything is in in human experience. And that's why I think SEL is such a big deal. But then it's easy to sort of think of that as separate from brain functioning and separate from insights from like cognitive science, neuroscience, and learning science. And I like the whole more holistic thinking that that you and others like you are, are bringing to bear on, on this. I'd love to get your perspective on cutting edge technology. So like since we're a future facing show, we try to 
stay on top of what's new and exciting and emerging in the world. So like we talk a lot about artificial intelligence. Uh, we did a show recently on brain computer interfaces, which are beginning to mature. We've also talked a bit about augmented reality, virtual reality, and uh, the list will continue to go on and on because new technologies are going to emerge. Are there any in particular that, that excite your imagination or you think have uh, more direct uh, relationship to uh, social and emotional learning? And uh, yeah, I'd love to get your perspective on that. Yeah, definitely. When, when I first heard about augmented reality, I, f I found this company online. It was called Magic Leap. And I'm so serious. I had their name up on my wall as someone that I thought I'm going to somehow work with these people. They had developed something, and I think it was through a glasses that, that the students put on where a whale jumped out of the floor in the middle of an assembly. And I just thought, oh my goodness, this is it. This is the, the way it's going to go because, you know, school is, was not exciting for me. You know, I'm learning so much more now, but I wish I was learning like this in school. If only yeah. my school was engaging. Yeah. And then I see what they're creating and I think this is, this is the answer. Right. But it, it didn't actually take off that way. I don't see schools all over the world with these whales jumping out of the, the, the gym floor. Yeah. But they are using virtual reality in the classrooms with brains turning around in the PE classes. I interviewed yeah. someone in my second interview. They're actually doing it in PE class, getting the kids to move anyone that I've talked to they're they're using it it's becoming more and more affordable so I think as you know technologies become more affordable that's when they can get into the schools that really it's difficult for some schools to to buy new some of these new things yes. without the funding but uh, it's definitely the way I see but I thought this you know when I first saw augmented reality then I was trying to think well how could we get students to learn about these social emotional skills you had some good ideas about get inclusion and empathy? What, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's been a little uh, more research about that, about using uh, VR, virtual reality in particular, to help um, help teach empathy, where you can, you can really begin to experience what it's like to be someone else. And frequently, the reason why folks have those biases is that they've never really been exposed to what it feels like to be on the other side. The example I remember from a New York article a few years back was in the case of domestic abusers, they frequently had never been in the context, the feeling, the perception of being physically intimidated by their spouse. And in some cases, I think there was a positive effect after that intervention that it's almost like you can teach empathy through, through use of virtual reality. And then I think the related space that, that I'm really fascinated by is simulations and teaching through simulations, particularly for like high stakes, limited access things like, you know, like if you're, uh, you're training to be a pilot, obviously you're going to use a flight simulator in addition to your real flight time. Or if you're trying to, you know, learn how to, how to operate a very highly technical apparatus of some kind that you can only get in a particular lab. Now that access to at least simulations like that are going to be democratized so that everybody uh, can at least get the sort of preliminary training and experience under their belts. So, so yeah, I think there'll be a lot of interesting stuff around around all of this as as we we careen into the future. One thing that we we talked a little bit about and you kind of touched on it is the challenges of the rate of change within within K twelve versus within the the workplace versus higher ed or or pre K and formal learning. 
you know, I do respect your work and the work of folks who are trying to make an impact within, within K-12, but, but frequently, even though the learners may be the most malleable and flexible, frequently the structure and the of the institution itself makes it really hard to implement the, the, the sort of cutting edge emerging capabilities. Can you, can you share a little bit of your perspective on that? Because you've been both uh, you know, a middle school teacher and now you've been uh, consulting in the space, both in schools and then also in workplaces. I'd love to get a little bit of your perspective on that. Definitely, definitely. When I ask everyone that's an expert, you know, how long do you think this is going to take? I've been following CASEL. They're the, the leaders in this movement, uh, watching how the standards have changed. I've watched every webinar since 2014 where they had, you know, barely any states with SEL standards. Now, you know, we're, we're half the country is SEL standards, at least I think 70% of the, the country now has SEL on their website. So right, right. SEL is definitely making an impact. It's, it's in the schools. Most people know what it is. They just don't know how to get started on it. So what, what I'm seeing, it's, it's working in pockets. If there's always, you know, when you present, there's always five or six people that come up at the end of a presentation that want to know everything. They're those go-getters. There's those types of people in the school as well, those go-getters that are the change makers. Those are the people that are gonna get this information, take it to their district, start in their school, and then making the change in their school. So that's how it's getting into the schools. Mm -hmm. There are um, people out there doing incredible work. Dr. Lori Desitel is now training teachers. You can get your master's in educational neuroscience and bring it into your school. So there are movements. It's just not, you know, taking off across the board. So those movements are happening. Educators, if you're interested, model it yourself, model it in the home. And then that's how we're gonna have a better workplace where our students, our, our employees are gonna be better prepared with these social skills that we need. We need them for you know, you're in a hotel and something's not right in your hotel. You don't just call down to the front desk screaming. You got to know the, the proper way to ask for what you need. Right. It, it translates all, all across life. So Yeah. And, and if anything, what I've seen is at least on the workplace side, there's more measurement of the health and engagement of your culture. And when you start measuring that, maybe they'll get to a point where they can, you know, get more uh, neuroscientific about it, but they're at least, you know, based on surveys and other engagement metrics, there are ways to understand how being cognizant of social and emotional components of your, your workplace ultimately leads to better business performance. And I think that's in some ways not as true in in more traditional educational settings so like i think the actual measurement and motivation to change quickly is more likely gonna crop up in the workplace development side where being novel may give you a competitive advantage and there really are fewer constraints on your ability to try some kind of new intervention whereas i think in in k-12 or even in higher ed there's so many other demands on the teacher and the classroom dynamics that sure like the top five, 10% may have the ambition and the resources and the capability to sort of affect these sort of transformative things. 
but but I think increasingly like the I'm looking more to workplace development, lifelong learning as the space, at least in the next say five to ten years, where more innovation is going to be happening. And then I think once it works in those contexts, the other space that I think is super interesting is early childhood development. But like from those two ends, I think are where we'll see more profound transformation, transformative models. And then ideally though, that could then power back into K-12. Although to your point, it is, it's impressive, you know, it reminds me of the Bill Gates quote, you know, we underestimate, we overestimate how much change there'll be in two years. We underestimate how much change there'll be in 10. And if you think about social and emotional learning 10 years ago, it wasn't really a thing. And now it's, it's everywhere. And in some ways, I do think the connection to neuroscience is probably spot on in terms of where this momentum will likely go, particularly if we continue to see advances in the research side, and then we can figure out how to translate that research back into the classroom. We're, we're coming up on time, Andrea, and I'd love to have you back. This is a fascinating conversation. One of the questions we always ask our guests is, and I think we've talked about a lot of the trends, but what trends are capturing your imagination these days? Like what, what research are you looking at? Uh, what technologies are emerging? What, what new interventions are you seeing that you think might be gaining momentum as we head into the 2020s? Definitely the mindfulness movement, because I, I worked very closely with this young man. He's a teenager and he's trying to get mindfulness in the schools out in Florida. And he's part of this whole mindfulness summit bringing us back into, you know, what Waldman talked about with the salient and default networks. So right now it's, it's the whole taking that time to understand my own self. What, what are my thoughts and feelings mm -hmm. so that I can understand others better, paying attention to intuitions. What am I feeling only by taking breaks and by strengthening my own brain? Right. Can I get there? So right when I interviewed the last person that's not edited yet, but the last person I interviewed talked a lot about what's happening from a neuroscientific side with growth mindset. So mm -hmm. the fact that when we're practicing things, the myelin goes over the pathway, making it simple and easy. So some of these things that feel weird in the beginning, understanding the neuroscience behind it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, mindfulness is, Mindfulness is everywhere these days, and uh, our listeners can't see you, but uh, but Andrea is in fact levitating. Uh, no, I'm kidding. She's 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 not. So it's a great conversation, Andrea. What's the best way for folks who want to hear more to keep track of you and uh, get access to more of this great content? Definitely, you can find me at my website, achieveit360.com, achieveit360.com. Or you can find my uh, podcast, Neuroscience Meets Social Emotional Learning, at Andrea Samadhi, anywhere you find podcasts, on social media, Twitter, LinkedIn, just put my name in there and you'll see me. Awesome. Uh, thanks again, to Andrea, for joining. And for our listeners, we'll be back again soon on Trending in Education. Mm -hmm.